Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're starting a new chapter of Russia in Revolution. We finished up the chapter on war communism that talks about the policies, choices, and actions of the Bolshevik government in the course of the Civil War slash the aftermath of the Civil War and the resulting backlash and discontent from various different groups. Now we're moving on to a chapter that is going to go a little bit further and see what they tried to do as they wind down the policies of war communism. Chapter 6. The New Economic Policy. Politics and the Economy. In March 1921, Lenin told the 10th Party Congress that Russia was like a man beaten, quote, to within an inch of his life, end quote. Footnote 1. Against the background of the Kronstadt Rebellion and nationwide peasant insurgency, the Congress initiated what soon became known as the New Economic Policy, NEP, a massive reorientation of economic and social policy away from war communism towards the market and private enterprise. As early as January 1920, Yuri Larin had proposed on behalf of the Supreme Council of National Economy a partial shift from grain requisitioning towards commodity exchange with the peasantry, but Lenin demanded he be cut down to size. In March 1920, Trotsky proposed that in selected regions, confiscation of agricultural produce be replaced with a tax in kind, but the Central Committee rejected his proposal by 11 votes to 4. From November, however, the prostration of the entire country was too grave to be ignored, and Moscow was bombarded with appeals from the provinces to end war communism. On the 8th of February 1921, the Politburo appointed a commission to work out plans for a tax in kind, although this envisaged only a partial legalization of local markets. In the event, a couple of weeks later, the 10th Party Congress gave almost unanimous backing to the universal institution of a tax calculated at 20% of the harvest. More significantly, the Soviet Central Executive Committee, CEC, spelled out that any surplus grain might be sold to cooperatives or on the open market. The word trade was still taboo. In the event, this relatively modest step, recall that a black market had continued throughout the Civil War, signaled the beginning of the new economic policy, NEP. The regime moved quickly to restore the market, although within months it would be grappling to tackle the famine. The system of rationing and state distribution of subsistence items was dismantled, and in May 1921 much of industry was denationalized, with cooperatives and private entrepreneurs permitted to lease small consumer goods enterprises. Radical though these measures were, they did not lead to a drastic mitigation of the economic crisis. In parts of the Volga region, the Don, and Ukraine, famine lingered into 1923. Nevertheless, agriculture recovered quickly, and the harvests of 1922 and 1923 were good. 
However, the trusts that oversaw the different branches of nationalized industry continued to maintain the price of manufactured goods at an artificially high level. And this resulted in 1923 in the Scissors Crisis. This was the first crisis of the NEP. In the Scissors Crisis, the blades of industrial and agricultural prices opened ever wider, to the point where by October 1923, industrial prices were 290% above their 1913 level, while agricultural prices were only 89%. Footnote 3. The bias against agricultural prices worsened in 1924, as peasants, eager to pay taxes in money rather than in kind, released a considerable volume of grain onto the market, further pushing down prices. The government responded by introducing stringent fiscal credit and price measures to lower industrial prices. Through massively cutting public expenditure, slashing subsidies to the state sector, and requiring state-owned enterprises to make a profit, the Scissors Crisis was overcome. In addition, by 1924, a stable currency had been restored, in which the ruble was backed by gold, a remarkable achievement given the inflationary anarchy that had prevailed. By this stage, the NEP had emerged in full. It was a hybrid, mutating system that combined a peasant economy, state industry subject to economic accounting, private trade and industry, a state and cooperative network of procurement and distribution, a credit system, and a rudimentary capital market. However, even after the scissors crisis had been overcome, the system continued to experience problems, not least because of the reluctance of government economic organs to allow market forces too much sway. While all Bolsheviks agreed that NEP was a transitional phase, the nature and duration of that transition proved to be a matter of bitter dispute. Lenin was ambivalent, speaking of NEP both as a retreat and as a policy intended to last seriously and for a long time. In his past writings, such as On Cooperation, penned in January 1923, when he was already seriously ill, he went so far as to concede that, quote, there has been a radical modification in our whole outlook on socialism, end quote, and that the, quote, system of civilized cooperators is the system of socialism, end quote. He sketched a perspective of a gradual transition to socialism based upon a cultural revolution, discussed in chapter 7, and the expansion of cooperatives among the peasantry. Footnote 4. Some historians argue that these valedictory meditations demonstrate that Lenin had come to embrace a market-based alternative to statist socialism, in which the Soviet Union would evolve gradually from state capitalism to socialism. Footnote 5. Yet neither he nor his party seriously deviated from the conception of socialism as entailing the elimination of the market and state ownership of the entire means of production. Equally, however, it is clear that Lenin did come to see NEP as more than a retreat, namely as a system in which market mechanisms of private trade, 
profit and loss, and monetary relations would gradually be used to strengthen the state sector at the expense of the private sector, over a period of at least one or two decades. Bolsheviks and markets were never happy bedfellows, and from the first, the government felt impelled to interfere in the operation of the market, not least because the working class tended to suffer from the new system more than the peasantry. Footnote 6. In a bid to strengthen state-owned industry as early as 1923, the Supreme Council of National Economy sought to restrict sources of private credit to private entrepreneurs, and to increase the role of syndicates in distributing commodities. Footnote 7. Following Lenin's death in 1924, economic policy increasingly became a bone of contention within the party leadership, at the heart of the struggle to establish who should replace him. The Stalin group, in the ascendancy from the mid-1920s, defended NEP against the left opposition but from 1926 gradually turned against it. Nevertheless, from 1924 to 1926, NEP enjoyed a heyday in which market forces were allowed considerable scope, especially in agriculture. This was the period when the official slogan was Face to the Countryside, and even kulaks were offered significant leeway. Thereafter, the Politburo increasingly intervened to direct policy, undermining the authority of the Council of People's Commissars and the Council of Labour and Defence, both organs that were broadly supportive of NEP. The war scare of summer 1927, which was precipitated by Britain's severing diplomatic relations after Soviet espionage was uncovered, was critical in hardening the determination of the Stalin group to step up the rate of investment in heavy industry. A crisis emerged in summer 1928 when difficulties in procuring grain from the harvest year 1927-28 led to the reintroduction of rationing in the cities. This coincided with the onset of the first five-year plan which had been ratified by the 15th Party Congress in December 1927. The Stalin leadership now became convinced that instead of the state sector gradually gaining dominance over the private sector, the reverse was happening. Kulaks were holding the towns to ransom, and in the cities, nepmen, the business people who seized the opportunities for private enterprise opened up by the NEP, and the bourgeoisie were becoming even more influential. It resolved to be done with NEP. New Economic Policy and Agriculture The ideological aim of NEP was, in the jargon of the leadership, to cement the alliance smichka, between the proletariat and the peasantry. Yet NEP never overcame the conflict between the needs of the town and countryside that had first appeared during the First World War. The government recognized the need to invest in modernizing agriculture by introducing new equipment, continuing the rationalization of land use, and by encouraging the resettlement of population but it was unable and unwilling to commit the large-scale resources that these things required. 
given that its overwhelming priority was to accelerate industrialization. Moreover, the desire to mollify the peasantry and modernize agriculture strained against the need to squeeze the countryside for grain, raw materials, and timber, not only to feed the towns, but also to extract a surplus of agricultural produce that could be sold for export in return for the import of industrial equipment. As early as 1923, grain exports resumed even as some areas continued to go hungry. Footnote 8. Nevertheless, peasant society recovered from its desperate plight with astonishing speed. By the middle of the 1920s, the agrarian economy was back to pre-war levels of output. Farming continued to be prey to the vicissitudes of the weather. The harvest of 1924-25 to was disappointing owing to severe drought in many regions, but thereafter harvests were good. By 1926, grain output had recovered to its pre-war level, although per capita output remained somewhat below the 1909-13 average. This was partly due to the destruction of the most commercially developed landed estates in the course of the revolution so that in the key southern and central agricultural regions, grain surpluses never reached more than 70% and 35% respectively of their pre-war levels. Footnote 9. The output of non-grain products was far more buoyant, exceeding pre-war levels. By 1925, cattle numbers had almost recovered to 1916 levels and milk production exceeded the 1913 level. The number of horses, however, was still slightly below the 1913 level by 1928. Footnote 10. By the mid-1920s, peasants, though still very poor by modern standards, were enjoying the best times they would see between 1914 and the 1950s. Having oversupplied the market during the scissors crisis, peasants were increasingly consuming more of their produce selling just enough to cover their taxes and other expenses. In comparison with the pre-revolutionary period, the burden of direct taxation on land, cattle, and horses had increased, but since land rents had been abolished, the combined burden of indirect and direct taxes on farm incomes fell from 19% in 1913 to just under 10% in 1926-27. Footnote 11. Moreover, the tax was broadly progressive, so that in 1924-25, one-fifth of households were exempt on the grounds that they were poor peasants, a proportion that rose to one-third by 1929. Taxes were lowered in spring 1925, so that the economic year 1925-26 may be said to mark the apogee of NEP, the time when official policy as articulated by Bukharin and at this point backed by Stalin, was at its most favourable to the peasantry. This was also the point when official policy towards the wealthier peasants was at its most lenient, since restrictions on hiring labour and leasing land were relaxed. The relative decline in the tax burden was thus a factor in discouraging peasants from marketing as much grain as they had done before the revolution. 
Another reason for the fall in the amount marketed, in addition to the tax issue just mentioned, was that in spite of the Sizzes crisis, the terms of trade between agriculture and industry continued to favour the latter. More particularly, they disfavoured grain compared with other types of farm produce and livestock. In 1926, grain accounted for only 35% of net agricultural output, and the proportion of that which was sold on the market was lower than before the war. Footnote 12. Between 1926 to 27 and 1928 to 29, the terms of trade for agriculture improved, owing to a lowering of industrial prices, but although the total volume of agricultural produce sold continued to rise, sales of grain did not increase. Indeed, a lowering of the procurement prices for grain led to a serious shortage by the autumn of 1927, when only 16.9% of the grain harvest was marketed compared with 24% in 1913. Footnote 13. Peasants clearly preferred to hold on to their grain, using it to feed a rapidly growing population, to eat better, to rebuild livestock herds, and to turn it into alcohol. On the 6th of January 1928, the Central Committee issued a circular, signed by Stalin, which criticised local party and state organisations for slowness in handing over surpluses and ordered them to speed up the payment of peasant arrears, quote, in recovering arrears of all kinds, apply immediately the harshest punishment, in the first instance towards the kulaks, end quote, footnote 14. Shortly thereafter, Stalin took the unprecedented step of leading an expedition to Siberia to oversee the implementation of the decree announcing, while he was there, that the shock task of all party and Soviet organizations was to keep up maximum pressure on the procurement front, a return to the language of civil war. Footnote 15. Nevertheless, Stalin still faced opposition from rivals within the party leadership, notably Bukharin and Alexei Rykov and the April 1928 plenum of the Central Committee temporarily reversed course to a more pro-market policy. In summer 1928, however, as rationing was introduced in the cities, Stalin's line of using force to procure grain prevailed. Footnote 16. The 1920s was a period when the underlying resilience and traditionalism of peasant society reasserted itself. The agrarian revolution had strengthened the influence of the commune and left little of the Stolypin reforms in place. The Land Code of 1922 strengthened communal principles of land use by making labour the criterion of eligibility for land, and by prohibiting the purchase and sale of land. At the same time, the drafters of the law sought to encourage households to enclose their holdings in the spirit of the Stolypin reforms, and to discourage the trend for sons to demand their share of land and to set up their own farms. In 1922, almost 99% of peasant land in the RSFSR was under communal control, and the percentage would only decrease to about 95% by end of the decade. A few individual farmsteads did survive in the West and Northwest, 
where they comprised 19% and 11% of peasant land. But for most peasants, the cost of separating from the commune and consolidating their allotments through building, digging wells, and drainage remained beyond their means. Footnote 17. Change was taking place, but not at a pace that could satisfy the regime. The Commissariat of Agriculture, the largest government ministry by the end of the 1920s, pursued many of the policies of its Tsarist predecessor. Between 1922 and 1927, 98.3 million hectares were redistributed between and within communities, mainly to the benefit of the neediest households. Footnote 18. Land reorganization involved promoting multi-field rotation, merger of strips, reducing the distance between the strips, and technical improvements such as the replacement of the scratch plow by the wooden plow. The commissariat was one of the ministries, others were the commissariats for trade and finance, which was most committed to NEP, downplaying class differentiation in the countryside and seeking to work with, rather than against, the commune in its effort to encourage innovation. This, plus the fact that many of its staff were former SRs, only served to arouse suspicion in sections of the party leadership and led to the commissariats being overhauled at the end of the 1920s. Footnote 19. On the eve of the forced collectivization, however, agriculture still remained primitive. With modern equipment such as horse-drawn sewing machines, harvesters, mowers, and threshing machines still a rare phenomenon. NEP proved that it could sustain slow, extensive growth of agricultural output, but it could not generate the big increase in productivity that was required if rapid industrialization were to be achieved. The Communist Party saw the abolition of small peasant farming and the creation of agricultural collectives as the solution to this problem. But so long as Lenin lived, this was seen as a medium to long-term project. In particular, collectivization of agriculture was understood to be a process that the peasantry would undertake voluntarily. In his last writings, Lenin argued that the expansion of cooperatives would serve as a break on private trade and as a bridge to large-scale collective farming. Deliberately squeezed during the Civil War, the cooperative movement in 1922 stirred into life. In spite of high taxes on its activities, tight credit, and the general instability of the ruble. Only in December 1923 did the government make a decisive concession to the cooperatives by making membership voluntary. Between January 1923 and April 1924, the number enrolled in cooperatives grew from 4.9 million to 6.9 million, mostly in supply and purchasing cooperatives or credit cooperatives. By 1928, there were 28,600 such cooperatives, embracing nearly half of peasant households, testimony perhaps to the potential that Lenin saw in them. Footnote 20. However, producer cooperatives remained few in number, and the bulk of peasants preferred to trade on the open market. Moreover, through its insistence on strictly regulating their activities, the party clogged the administration of the cooperatives with staff and cramped their economic freedom. 
More generally, the robustness of the commune was a factor that inhibited government efforts to promote voluntary collective farms. Even by 1928, two-thirds of collective farms were rudimentary associations for common cultivation, attracting relatively small numbers of mainly poor peasants. In the countryside, the forces of tradition still prevailed over those of change, but the burning question of land no longer absorbed the younger generation in the way that it had its parents. A sample of letters sent to the peasant newspaper between 1924 and 1926, from a total of the 1.3 million received, presents a complex picture. Nearly 60% of letters reflect what might be called a traditional orientation to agriculture, insofar as they were not antagonistic to the market, yet urged the state to ensure fairness by modifying its operation through taxation and agricultural subsidies. Footnote 21. Such letters were also traditional in that they favoured collective over individual forms of enterprise, seeing the gradual development of cooperatives as most in tune with the Russian way of doing things. The rest of the letters divide more or less equally into three. Those that saw individual entrepreneurship as the only way to improve peasant living standards and were distrustful of the state. Those, overwhelmingly from poor peasants, that bemoaned continuing inequalities and looked to the state to rectify these. And those, which included letters from communists and members of agricultural communes, that were genuinely enthusiastic for collective forms of agriculture. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week we'll be continuing on with this chapter on the economy. If you have any questions, corrections, comments, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com abnormalmapping if you want to support the network and get access to even more podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.